It is good to be here with you all. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jonathan. I have the privilege of being the campus pastor here. And uh, it, it is a real privilege to, to be here uh, this morning. I, I know I say that pretty much every single Sunday, but, but I mean it just a little bit extra here today. Uh, the reason is, is because we're actually in this building here today. Some of you might, might be aware it's been spring break over the past couple of weeks, and so the school and the school board have been trying to do all the, all the repairs, all the maintenance that needed to be done for, for some time now. And so what they have been doing is they've actually been working on, well, well, some of the plumbing upgrades, and so there's been no water. The water's been shut off here. Everyone has been out of the building for the past couple of days. And I got a call yesterday uh, saying, just so you know, the water is still shut off. The crews are still working in there, and they'll be there till about 8 or 9 o'clock tonight. Hopefully, you'll be able to go in tomorrow morning. And I said, thanks. Uh, <laughs> That's a surprise. And so we, we started to make plans. Well, what are we going to do if we can't even get into this building? And so uh, we, we came up with a whole idea about doing an outdoor service. And uh, if you've looked outside at the kind of cold, drizzly rain, it's just a blessing to be inside here this morning, isn't it? I, and, and I tell you that story, really, just, just to make the point that in one sense, nothing changed between me telling you that and not, right? We're, we're still sitting in this building. We're still, you know, going about as if it had not even happened. But actually, when you hear the full story, when you hear everything that's gone on, it, it does change your perspective a little bit. I, I hope it makes, well, it makes me certainly a lot more grateful to be in here and dry and warm and all of those things, right? When you hear the full story of whatever has taken place, oftentimes it will change your perspective on it. Right? It's the same thing when you, when you meet someone uh, new. Right? Maybe you meet them, you start getting to know them, and you're thinking, man, this person's kind of odd. Right? They've got these weird mannerisms or whatever. You're trying to figure out you know, why do they think that way. And it's not until really you start getting into more of their life. You start hearing their whole story and the experiences they've gone through and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden it starts clicking. You're like, oh, I understand why you would act that way. I understand why you would say that thing or, or whatever it is. When you get the full picture, when you get the whole story, suddenly a lot of things start to click into place. It changes your perspective on how things are happening. And, and I think this morning our text is really designed to do exactly that. It's meant to, to make us look at the whole picture and actually begin to say, well, actually our perspective changes a little bit when we get it. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's trying to get them to do this. They don't really get it, right? They, they kind of miss the point, at least at first. And so my prayer is this morning is that we wouldn't actually miss that point, that we'd understand really what Jesus is trying to say, and really the, the change in perspective that it gives to us. So we are continuing on with this series. We are walking through the Gospel of Luke with Jesus as he is journeying to Jerusalem, right? As we get closer and closer to Easter, we're getting closer and closer on Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross that we celebrate on, on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But all throughout this series, we've been noticing Jesus is getting more and more uh, blunt, with his disciples. He's starting to tell them really clearly, really upfront, this is what it costs to follow me. This is what it looks like, and this is what I'm going to do. And so 
this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, actually, I'll invite you to open up to Luke chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 31 to 34. But what we just heard read was actually a lot more than that, right? We actually started all the way back in chapter 9, reading a couple of sections, working our way up to Luke chapter 18. And the reason for that is because this is what we're looking at here. This is the third time Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to die. Jesus has been going over this a couple times. This is the third time he is telling them, look, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I am going to die. And he gets really, really upfront. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And what happens at the end? The disciples didn't get it. And you're thinking to yourself, I mean, how much more clear can Jesus really be about this? I'm going to die. I don't know what that means, right? And you're kind of just sitting there like, Come on, guys, like, like figure this out. How is this so hard? So I want us, as we're going to work through this text, I want us to kind of look and say, well, what, what were the disciples actually thinking? Why did they find this so difficult to, to understand? What was Jesus wanting them to get? And ultimately, really, what does it mean for us? How does it change how we view our own lives? And so here, here's really, I, I, I think, the point Really, it's that everything is about Jesus, and when we get the whole story, it transforms how we see the world around us. So we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to see how these things work out. So in Luke chapter 18, Jesus has just been teaching the crowds. A rich man has come to him and said, you know, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, well, you've got to sell everything and follow me, and this man walks away dejected because he doesn't want to sell everything, right? He wants to keep his possessions instead of following Jesus. But at this time, Jesus is then pulling his disciples away. He kind of, he does this sort of group huddle and says, all right, verse 31, and taking the 12, he, Jesus said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Right? So Jesus is huddling up with his disciples. He says, all right, we're almost there. Let's go over the plan one more time, right? We've talked about this. This is what's going to happen. Everything that is written about the Son of Man is going to be accomplished, right? Jesus wants them to understand that really everything that had been happening in the Old Testament up until that point was all about him. Everything is about Jesus. Everything that was written has been leading up and focusing on what he is about to do. He says everything that's written about the Son of Man is about to be accomplished. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll know this is, this is the title Jesus often takes. He'll talk about himself as, as the Son of Man. And, and, and a lot of times we kind of view that and we're like, all right, Jesus is just saying, look, I'm, I'm just a human being like everyone else. But actually, if, if you know where this title comes from, it comes out of the Old Testament, it's actually one of the most prestigious, highly honored, glorified titles that there is. Right? It actually comes out of Daniel chapter 7. This is, this is what it says. Daniel writing this says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all nations, people or peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
And so Jesus says to his disciples, all right, do you understand everything that's written is about to be accomplished? And so what are the disciples thinking? We're going to Jerusalem. That, that is, is, is the royal city. We are going to the place where, where this future son of man is going to sit and rule and reign over all the earth in an eternal kingdom. This is what's going to happen, right? The disciples are thinking, all right, We're talking about the kingdom of God. Hasn't that been what Jesus has been telling them for for ages now, right? He's ushering in the kingdom of God. He's been teaching them about what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. Here it is. We're going to Jerusalem. Here is going to be the establishment of the kingdom of God. In fact, if you've read your Bibles, you'll know this is a theme that that works all throughout, all the way back to, to King David, Right? God promises King David, hey, one of your descendants, one of your sons is going to sit on a throne forever. And so the Jewish people, they are waiting for this to happen. And Jesus says, look, everything that the prophets wrote about the Son of Man, it's going to come true now. But then he follows it up and he says in verse 32, for he, the Son of Man, Jesus will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. I mean, it sounds like almost the exact opposite of what Daniel was talking about, doesn't it? I mean, how is it that we have this this sort of grand vision of the the Son of Man who is coming to have this eternal kingdom, and yet Jesus is saying that he is coming and he is going to be mistreated, abused, and executed? What on earth was Jesus expecting of them to understand? It sounds like this is the exact opposite. Well, again... Jesus uses one word that's very important here. He uses the word everything. Everything that was written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. See, the disciples had a very narrow vision of what was supposed to happen, right? They they had read some of the Bible. They had some of the promises down, and they understood that. But Jesus is trying to get them to understand, actually, what's going to happen here is everything that has been talked about in the Old Testament, all of it was leading up to what Jesus is doing. So what should they have figured out? What is it that Jesus is referring to when he talks about this? Well, actually, as as we go through the Bible, we see a couple really big themes begin to work out. One, that the salvation, this, this bringing out of death will come through a sacrifice. And the other is that the Savior that God is going to use, the servant of God is going to be rejected. Right? If you go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to, to the book of Genesis, when sin first enters into the world... There's this curse of sin, right? Death enters into it. Death is the result of sin in our world. And when God is speaking then to Satan, this is what he says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right, this is really the, the prophecy, the promise, the hope that starts off the entire storyline of the Bible, of what God is going to do to ultimately one day destroy sin entirely. 
But it starts off with a promise, yes, that the head of this serpent is going to be crushed, but at the same time, the heel of this offspring is going to be bruised. Actually, I think what Jesus would have said is, yeah, the Messiah is going to be bruised. The Messiah is going to be hurt in this dealing with sin. And so as the storyline of Scripture begins to unfold more and more, we see this theme again and again. You see it in the life of Abraham, right? Abraham is this chosen one God selects, and he says, well, through your line, through your children shall come a blessing for the entire world. Abraham, I'm choosing you, and it's going to be through your family. And Abraham has a son. And then we get this absolutely gut-wrenching chapter that happens. And God says, you're going to sacrifice your son. And we're sitting there thinking, I mean, how is this even possible? How is this possible that he's going to now, now, now he's going to sacrifice this very son, the one who is supposed to bring a blessing for the entire world? How is it that this son is supposed to now be sacrificed? And just before Abraham does it, God stops him and he says, no, actually it's not your son. There's going to be a sacrifice that takes place for this blessing to come to the entire world. But Abraham, it's not your son. Instead, I will provide a substitute. And God gives him a ram. In fact, God says, I will provide a substitute sacrifice to, to be rid of sin entirely. And as we follow through the story of Abraham, we see his, his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, and we see these themes continuing, this, this substitutionary sacrifice, but we also start seeing more and more that the servant of God, the Savior that God is going to raise up, is going to be rejected. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph and his, and his coat of many colors, and he's got these wild dreams that are happening to him, and, and he starts to be, you know, favorited by his dad, and all his brothers just hate him. They want nothing to do with Joseph. In fact, they, they're so angry with him, they conspire with one another. They go, they beat him, they throw him in a pit, and then eventually sell him off into the hands of foreigners. He is as good as dead to their eyes. They go back and tell their dad, yeah, he, he's dead now, and they write him off entirely. But of course, if you know the story, God, God actually saves him. God, God brings him through, and in fact, he even becomes one of the most, uh, the highest ranking rulers in the nation of Egypt. He ends up being nearly a, a king in that land. And eventually a famine sweeps through the land and, and here is Joseph sitting as a ruler on a king and his brothers come to him and need his help. And it's going to be by, the hand, by his hand that they are saved from starvation. Their brother who is alive is dead, or who is dead is alive and rules as a king. Right? These, these people who, who intended nothing but harm for their brother, God actually uses to save his people. God saves them from a death through a rejected and hated savior that his own brothers tried to kill. And in fact, we see this theme again and again and again, probably greatest actually in the life of Moses. The story again continues on. The people of Israel are, are living in Egypt for some time and eventually they become enslaved under a new king. 
And God, once again, is going to raise up a savior, a deliverer, to bring them out of this slavery, but they reject him again and again and again. In fact, if you know the story, when God actually calls Moses and says, all right, go to these people and start teaching them in my name, the first thing they say is, well, who are you? Why should we listen to you? In fact, as Moses goes and he starts talking to Pharaoh and he says, look, let the Israelites go. Pharaoh makes their work even harder. And who do they blame? Moses, the one God had sent to redeem them. And as God sends plagues on Egypt, eventually there is the final plague, the plague of death. God tells Moses that every firstborn male in the land of Egypt is going to die. Right? The punishment for sin is, is always death, but God provides a means of escape. God tells Moses, take a lamb, put the lamb to death in the place of your firstborn son, this Passover lamb, that the death may not actually fall on you. Right? God is showing them, what does it look like? How is it that you are going to escape the curse of death? It's not going to be through what you can do, but it's going to be through this substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. And this theme of salvation of death just gets repeated over and over and over again. Even in the life of Moses, even as they leave Egypt, immediately Pharaoh just decides, well, I'm not letting you guys go. And he takes his arm and he chases after them. God rescues them out of that death as he brings them through the Red Sea. They're going to die in the desert, so God gives them water and he gives them food. They're going to die as they come close into God's presence. And so God gives them the tabernacle and shows them this sacrificial system. How is it that you can actually come close to God? Again and again, we see these sacrifices, this substitute in our place. But even as that happens again and again, the people reject Moses. Right? If, if you know the story of, of Exodus and Numbers, I mean, just count how many times the people grumble, the people complain, the people come after Moses and they're angry at him. In fact, they try and overthrow him multiple times to get him out of leadership. There are rebellions that are started against Moses because no one wants to follow after the Savior that God had given them. And so Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 18, there is a future prophet that's going to come. God's speaking. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will speak them uh, to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses says, there's another prophet that's going to come. There's another prophet, another one who will speak God's word, who will tell you of these substitutionary sacrifices about how you can be saved. And just like they have rejected Moses, they will reject this prophet as well. God's salvation through a rejected servant and a substitutionary sacrifice comes up again and again and again, right? We could literally be here all day just walking through the storyline of the Bible and how many times this happens, you can think of Jonah and the whale. 
Here is Jonah who should be as good as dead, swallowed in a fish, and yet God rescues him and brings him back to life. You can think of of, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, literally trapped in a tomb of death all night, and yet God allows him to walk out unscathed. David being shut into a cave, surrounded by his enemies and King Saul, and yet God brings him out not only in life, but he can walk out in peace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, saved out of a fire that should have killed them. King Hezekiah, surrounded by the Assyrian army, yet God delivers them out of it again and again and again. The storyline of the Bible is God delivering them out of death, even as the servants of God are rejected again and again. Isaiah the prophet writes, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is Isaiah talking about how people treat him as the prophet of God. In fact, I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting to. Verse 32 in our passage says, he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. Jesus is saying this is the exact same pattern that has always existed. God raises up a, a, a prophet, a savior, and he is rejected. Do you see the patterns God has been working through? How this eternal kingdom is going to come not through this triumphal rise of of glory and honor, but actually will come through rejection, suffering, and sacrifice. The Messiah will be put to death. Jesus says in verse 33, and after flogging him, they will kill him. I don't think Jesus is referring to any one particular passage one particular text in, in the Old Testament. But if, if he were, I think this would be the closest. It's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is talking about this coming servant of God, this coming Messiah, and this is what, this is what he says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall, uh, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is one of the most important prophecies in the entire Old Testament, and it's one I don't think the disciples understood. It's that the Messiah who would come would actually be the rejected servant of God, but he would also be the one to be that sacrifice. Jesus himself is that substitutionary sacrifice, that sacrifice that will ultimately deal with sin and death forever. That was going to be him. And so Jesus says, that's exactly why I've come. I have come to be this substitute in your place, that he would die in our place. He would be rejected, put to shame, whipped, killed as a sacrifice for the sin of others. And by his death, many would be counted righteous. For all who would believe, all who would trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we are counted as righteous before God. That is the good news of why Jesus has come. And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. I am that substitutionary sacrifice. 
But I love this verse right there at the end of that passage in Isaiah. It says, he is going to be the one to bear the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here again, I think, is something the disciples didn't quite understand. See, Jesus says, they're going to kill me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise. You can look at that prophecy in Isaiah. How is it that, that this Messiah is going to both die for the sake of sins and yet also live to be an intercessor, to be our advocate on our behalf? How is it possible he can do both because he both dies and he rises again? Jesus doesn't stay dead forever. He is going to rise to new life. He is the one who is going to sit on this eternal throne forever. Even, in fact, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, look, read the Old Testament. You're going to see all these hints over and over again about what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to die as a substitute for our sins. He will be the rejected Savior, but he is not staying in the grave. And so Jesus tells his disciples plainly, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. Everything in the Bible has been leading up to, pointing to this one moment that Jesus is going to the cross. And as he goes to Jerusalem, he says, look, now everything that has been written is about to be accomplished. He wants his disciples to have this in mind. Do you understand the whole story? This has been the plan from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 3, God has been setting forth this plan in motion that everything would be fixed and centered on Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is trying to teach his disciples this. As they're walking to Jerusalem, he wants to give them this transformed outlook on life. He's repeated it now three times for them already. Why? Well, he wants them to get it. And you might ask the question, well, okay, but, but what difference does it actually make? They don't get it at this point. They do get it later. But does it change anything about, about what's going to happen? Well, well, no, not really. So why is Jesus going out of his way again and again and again to tell his disciples this? Why does he want them to have this perspective? Let me give you three reasons. Three reasons, and, and really, I, I think they're the same reasons why we need to listen to them as well. Number one, our lives are all about Jesus. See, if we understand this, this whole picture, that everything God has been doing for, for thousands of years has been leading up to, uh, to Jerusalem and Jesus on that cross, dying and rising again, actually it means our lives as well are all about Jesus. When we understand the whole story, it changes how we view our part in it. I said at the beginning, whenever we get the whole story, our perspective changes. This is no different. 
Our lives are not ultimately about ourselves, about gaining as much as we can do or just experiencing as much as we possibly can. Our lives are actually about pointing forward, pointing back to what Jesus has done and pointing forward to what he will yet do. All of creation is centered around focusing, magnifying, and glorifying Jesus, and that is our part as well. Right? You can imagine the scenario of a burning building, and someone is in there, they're asleep. Firefighter comes in, picks them up, drags them out of the house, and they're rescued. Can you imagine then the, the, the news media comes and they're interviewing this person who's been rescued and they say, well, well tell, us, tell us a little bit about what happened. And they say, you know, I, I was really courageous. I was in there. I was sleeping, breathing in that smoke. I was just, I, I, was, I was steadfast in what I was doing. I mean, I, I did an awesome job. I mean, how foolish would that be not to thank the guy who dragged your unconscious body out of the fire? You'd say, that person is just narcissistic, narcissistic, right? Because they're just focused on themselves. How is that any different from what our lives are called to be? Jesus is the one who is a sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who dragged us out of, out of danger, out of judgment. Actually, it means our lives are actually all focused and centered on thanking and praising and glorifying and telling more and more about Jesus. When we understand the whole story, it changes what we think our life is all about. See, every once in a while, someone will ask, well, how do I, how do I start talking about Jesus? How do I start talking about Jesus to my friends, my neighbors, whoever, right, coworkers? My answer is always, just start talking about your life. If Jesus is the center of everything that you do, of everything that you are, you're going to start talking about Jesus. It doesn't even take long. What'd you do on the weekend? Well, I went to church. Have you ever been to church? What does that look like? Tell me your thoughts. Start talking about Jesus and how it's transformed, how he has transformed your life. First reason I think Jesus is telling his disciples this, he wants them to realize all of our lives are about Jesus. It's not about going to work so that we can get more money, get more status so we can buy more toys. Actually, we glorify God through our work. We make our money to support families so that we can actually then give to others around us. Our lives are focused on Jesus. Number two, I think what we need to see here as we look at this whole story is we need to remember God is the one in control. So often, we, we can read our Bibles and we read about what God has done in different people's lives, and then we completely disassociate that with anything that happens to us in our lives. Something bad happens, and we spiral immediately, and we say, God, how could this possibly ever happen? Instead of realizing God always has been in control. He is still in control. He is sovereign over all these things, and in fact, is calling us to fix our eyes more and more on Jesus. We don't have to run off in a panic every time something happens, but instead we can actually trust God is in control. And if that's the case, what I need to ask when bad things happen, when trials come, I need to ask, well, well what is God showing me now? What new grace, what new mercy, what new aspect of God and his character am I going to see through this experience? 
I know that's hard when we're in pain. When things are difficult, that's a hard mindset to keep in mind, but it doesn't change the truth that God is in control. He is working all things so that we would see Jesus more and more. So number one, our lives are fixed on Jesus. Number two, God is in control. Number three, what happens when we understand the whole story? We realize our aim is not here but in heaven. Jesus rose from the grave. The reality is he's coming back one day and we will stand before God in eternity. That is where things are going. Our job is to point to what Jesus has done and to what he is still yet going to do. Paul puts it this way in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. The call is, let's let's not set our sights on whatever is happening in the rat race of all the temporary things, but rather invest in what is eternal. Set your mind on the things above. I mean, what does that mean practically? Practically, it means read your Bible. (laughs) Remind yourself of of what God has done. Go through this story. Know it more and more so that when you wake up tomorrow and you forget all of these things, you come back to the Word of God and are reminded, right, God is in control. Yes, my life is centered on Him. We are forgetful people. We are. As much as we, we think that we're not, we are forgetful people. It doesn't take long for us to forget even some of the great graces and mercies God has given. So remind yourself, set your mind on the things that are above. A gospel-transformed outlook means that our lives are centered on him. We can trust that he is in control and our aim is fixed in heaven. See, when we understand actually this picture of what God is doing, it should change the way we think. It should change a little bit the way that we act, that we treat other people even. It should change how we go to work on Monday or how we take care of the kids. We realize it's not about us. It is about Jesus. We can trust him with what is going on and we know that he is not finished. So when you go to work and you swing a hammer or you're taking care of kids and changing a diaper, yeah, you might do the same things you did before but actually it changes your how you do it and why. You can change a diaper to the glory of God. <laughs> Amen. You can actually take the time and say, God, thank you for this child. It's a gift from your hand. God, help me, help me to, to, to raise them well, to, to know and love you more than anything else in all of this life. You can say, Lord, thank you that they're growing. They're digesting food and all the rest. As they drive you nuts, you say, Father, this is how I've acted, isn't it? This is a picture of how I have acted towards you. Father, give me patience. Give me grace like you have shown to me. John Piper has a wonderful article. I commend it to you. It's called Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And I think that's exactly what we're called to do. When we have this understanding of what God has done, from the very beginning of creation, all things have been focused on Jesus. It shows us where we sit in that. 
Our goal and our purpose in life is to give all glory to Jesus Christ for what he has done and what he yet will do. And so my encouragement this morning is, look, the disciples missed this point. They heard Jesus speak and they couldn't understand. And so here is my prayer as we close. Father, let us not miss the point. Let us not miss what you are doing and open our eyes that we would see and love you more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. Father, we are so grateful that that you have loved us before the beginning of creation, that you have sent Jesus to this earth, that he would be the substitutionary sacrifice. Lord, even as we rejected your Savior, Lord, I pray, would you transform our hearts? Would you call us to yourself again and again? Let us not miss the the point of why we are here. But Father, I pray, would we glorify you in all that we do? Lord, as we go to work tomorrow, as we take care of kids tomorrow, whatever our hands find to do, Lord, I pray, would it be done for your glory as we keep in mind the grand picture of your salvation that you are working out on this earth. Father, I pray, would we be a part of that, that we could give you all the honor, all the glory, all the praise to which your name is due. We ask these things in your name.